Exodus chapter 1. We've got a lot to cover today. Uh, just for those of you who weren't here last week, uh, I am suffering from like a terrible gout flare-up in my knee and in my foot and all this stuff. And so it just, uh, if people have been asking, what does it feel like? It kind of got real bad last night and into today. It somewhat feels like an electric drill going through your kneecap. And so just picture that for the rest of the sermon uh, and, and enjoy your day. So um, I'm also a bit, I have a raised temperature, so if I sweat a ton, uh, one, I normally do, but not this much, and, uh, but that's just what's going on there too. So that being said, we're starting a new, uh, a new book today. It's normally what we do here at Redemption Church. We preach through books of the Bible. We find it tremendously important to open up the scriptures together and just say, like, what does this thing say? Like, how do we learn from the Bible? And one of the biggest things that we're going to say and continually pound into our people is, please be reading this while we're preaching through it. Don't let Exodus, the only time you hear it, would be in the 40 to 45 minutes that we talk about it on Sundays for the rest of this semester. Get into your Bibles, open it up, read the text Read along with us. I think Anthony this week is going to post kind of a reading schedule that will get you through the next three months having read the whole text and having a fuller understanding of everything we're talking about when we open up the book of Exodus. So let me pray for God's word to come to us and to open us up and to pierce us and to do what the Spirit needs to do with it. And so let's bow our heads one last time. God, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that you've communicated to us and that, God, we get to study this story today. God, as we open it up, God, would you reveal in us what we need to learn and reflect upon? God, would you show in us how we need you in desperate ways, just like the people of Israel? God, we then be shaped to be a people that were sent on mission for the sake of the world, that we would live that out today as we go from this place when it's time. God, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Christopher Wright, one of our favorite authors and theologians, said this about the book of Exodus. He said, Welcome to the book of Exodus. Its story is among the most exciting and well-known in all of human literature. Its central chapter records the Ten Commandments, among the most influential ethical statements in all of human history. Its rendering of the character of the God of Israel as overflowing with compassion, justice, holiness, judgment, mercy, forgiveness shapes and energizes the faith and worship of God's people throughout the rest of the Old Testament and richly feeds our understanding today of God as finally revealed in Jesus Christ. Its place within the story of God is defined by its record of God's greatest act of redemption until the cross and resurrection of Christ. Its concluding picture of God in all his blessing and glory dwelling in the midst of his people will spark the faith and sparked the vision of the concluding picture of the whole Bible. In other words, Exodus, some would argue, is like the most important book in the Scriptures. Like it, it is the precursor, it is the gospel paralleled story for everything you know about Jesus and the story of the gospel, Exodus runs in parallel with it. It is the most foreshadowed story to the gospel. It is often the most quoted story in the New Testament. It often raises us and calls us to look at what happened then and what does that mean for us today. 
And so by way of intro, I could have given you some details, but we just find it better to show you this video by The Bible Project. And so we're going to cue that up. It's six minutes. It's going to give you the book one through, uh, it's 40 chapters. We're going to get the first 18 chapters in this first video. We'll show you the rest when we get to verse chapter 19. So let's get the lights down. Let's turn that video up and you'll get an intro to this book. The book of Exodus. It's the second book of the Bible, and it picks up the storyline from the previous book, Genesis, which ended with Abraham's grandson, Jacob, leading his large family of 70 people down to Egypt. Now, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, had been elevated to second in command over Egypt, and he had saved his whole family in a famine. And so Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, offered the family to come live there as a safe haven. And so eventually Jacob dies there in Egypt, and Joseph and all his brothers do too. About 400 years pass, and the story of the Exodus begins. Now that name refers to the event that takes place in the first half of the book, Israel's exodus from Egypt. But the book has a second half that takes place at the foot of Mount Sinai. In this video, we'll just focus on the first half, where centuries have passed, and the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied, and they filled the land. Now, this line is a deliberate echo back to the blessing that God gave all humanity back in the Garden of Eden. And it reminds us of the big biblical story so far. Humanity forfeited God's blessing through sin and rebellion, and so God chose Abraham's family as the vehicle through which he would restore his blessing to all the world. But the new Pharaoh does not view Israel as a blessing. He actually thinks this growing Israelite immigrant group is a threat to his power. And so just as in Genesis, humanity rebels against God's blessing, so here Pharaoh attempts to destroy the source of God's blessing, the Israelites. He brutally enslaves them in forced labor, and then he orders that all the Israelite boys be drowned in the Nile River. Now, Pharaoh, he is the worst character in the Bible so far. His kingdom epitomizes humanity's rebellion against God. Pharaoh has so redefined good and evil according to his own interests that even the murder of innocent children has become good to him. And so Egypt has become worse than Babylon from the book of Genesis. And so now Israel cries out for help against this new Babylon, and God responds. God first turns Pharaoh's evil upside down as an Israelite mother throws her boy into the Nile River, but in a basket. And so he floats safely right down into Pharaoh's own family. He's named Moses, and he grows up to eventually become the man that God will use to defeat Pharaoh's evil. In the famous story of the burning bush, God appears to Moses and commissions him to go to Pharaoh and order him to release the Israelites. And God says that he knows Pharaoh will resist, and so he will bring his judgment on Egypt in the form of plagues. Then God also says that he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And so we're introduced into the next main part of the story, the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, what does this mean that God says he'll harden Pharaoh's heart? It's super important to read this section of the story really closely and in sequence. In Moses and Pharaoh's first encounter, we're told simply that Pharaoh's heart grew hard. There's no implication that God did anything. And so in response, God sends the first set of five plagues, each one confronting Pharaoh and one of his Egyptian gods. And each time, Moses offers a chance for Pharaoh to humble himself and to let the Israelites go. But after each plague, we're told that Pharaoh either hardened his heart or that his heart grew hard. He's doing this of his own will. And so eventually, it's with the second set of five plagues that we begin to hear how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
So the point of the story seems to be this. Even though God knew that Pharaoh would resist his will, God still offered him all of these chances to do the right thing. But eventually, Pharaoh's evil reaches a point of no return. I mean, even his own advisors think that he has lost his mind. And it's at that point that God takes over and bends Pharaoh's evil towards his own redemptive purposes. God lures Pharaoh into his own destruction as he saves his people, which is what happens next. With the final plague, it's the night of Passover, and God turns the tables on Pharaoh. Just as he killed the sons of the Israelites, so God will kill the firstborn in Egypt with a final plague. But unlike Pharaoh, God provides a means of escape through the blood of the lamb. And here the story stops and introduces us in detail to the annual Israelite ritual of Passover. On the night before Israel left Egypt, they sacrificed a young spotless lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe of their house. And when the divine plague came over Egypt, the houses covered with the blood of the lamb were passed over and the sun spared. And so every year since, the Israelites have reenacted that night to remember and to celebrate God's justice and his mercy. But Pharaoh, because of his pride and rebellion, he loses his own son, and he's compelled to finally let the Israelites go free. And so the Israelite slaves make their exodus from Egypt. But no sooner do they leave that Pharaoh changes his mind, and he gathers his army and chases after the Israelites for a final showdown. As the Israelites pass through the waters of the sea safely, Pharaoh charges towards his own destruction. The Exodus story concludes with the first song of praise in the Bible. It's called the Song of the Sea. And the final line declares that the Lord reigns as king. And then the song retells in poetry what the story of God's kingdom is all about. It's about how God is on a mission to confront evil in his world and to redeem those who are enslaved to evil. God is going to bring his people into the promised land where his divine presence will live among them. This story is what it looks like when God becomes king over his people. So after the Israelites sing their song, the story takes a sharp turn. The Israelites, they're trekking through the wilderness on their way to Mount Sinai, and they're hungry, they're thirsty, and they start criticizing Moses and God for even rescuing them. They say they long for the good old days in Egypt. I mean, it's crazy. So God graciously provides food and water for Israel in the wilderness, but these stories, they cast a dark shadow. And we begin to wonder, could it be that Israel's heart is just as hard as Pharaoh's? We shall see. But for now, that's the first half of the book of Exodus. All right, so there you go. Um, I would encourage you to go back and watch that frequently to give us continued context for what you're reading as you open up the scriptures with the Bible plan that we'll give you as we read through the book of Exodus uh, this semester. So um, they're phenomenal. We, we really like their work, and so go and check that out. So you're going to hear a lot of that stuff, but broken down into well, what does that mean for us, though, in, in present day kind of throughout our series. So um, here's the biggest thing we want to start off with is what you're often going to hear throughout this series is this idea of we're going to look at these reflections from our past that we might then change and be different in the present. And what I mean, our past, you have to understand, this, this is, if you're here and you're a Christian, like, that's your story too. Like, this, this is your ancestry. Ephesians 2, 11 through 13 says this, Remember that at one time you Gentiles were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. 
Although we, we were once as Gentiles, as non-Jews, except for maybe if there's some of you here that are Jews, well then, hey, you're already in, way to go, good job. But for the rest of us Gentiles, right, we've been grafted into that story because of the work of Jesus on the cross. And so what we understand then is this is our story. So we look at the past, reflections from our past, that we might then apply them to the present, that we would not live in the same mistakes that we see from previous stories, and that then we'd be able to apply in the present, that we would too be the faithful people of God. So here we go. Verse 1 of Exodus chapter 1. Here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob each with his own household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so the land was filled with them. You saw it in the video, but this is a direct fulfillment of God's promise, both in the Garden of Eden and then to Abraham, later on in Genesis chapter 12 and 15. Let me show you some scriptures. Genesis 1, 28. And God blessed them. This is creation. God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Genesis 12, 2. Fast forward to Abraham. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Fast forward to chapter 15. And he says, look to the heavens and see if you can number the stars. So shall your offspring be. Like that's how great your people will grow. Now here's what we know. If you fast forward to Exodus chapter 12, we begin to get a number and a decent idea of how much growth the Israelites experienced in just four or five centuries. It says they started with 70. We just read that in Exodus chapter 1. In Exodus chapter 12, when they're already in the wilderness, we'll be there in a handful of weeks, we find out that there were 600,000 men, okay? 600,000 men. So at conservative estimates, people estimate that the number of Israelites grew from 70 to just around 2 to 2.5 million Israelites, including women and children, a fulfillment of, of God's promise. Now, if you know a bit of the story of Genesis, it kind of leads us to this one reflection that has to come true and has to be at the forefront of our study of the book of Exodus, and it's simply this. God is always faithful to fulfill his promises, but he accomplishes them in ways we don't always understand. He, he's always faithful to fulfill his promises, but he's going to accomplish those things sometimes in ways we don't understand, sometimes in ways we don't like, and sometimes in ways we love, right? If you look at the book of Genesis, it was a mess. It was a mess. And I would encourage you to go and reread the book of Genesis or read it for the first time if you have not to see some of the depths of craziness and confusion. When this first prophecy was given in Genesis chapter 1, the world was perfect, there was no sin. So he's like, hey, yeah, it's going to be fruitful and multiply, have dominion over the earth, it's going to be amazing. And then this little thing called sin enters the world during the fall in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 4, there's a murder of one brother to another one. In Genesis chapter 6 and 7, there's a flood over the whole earth because the world had gotten that depraved and that sinful. You fast forward, you get to Babel, where again, man tried to prove themselves, and so God had to scatter them about the world. 
You get to Genesis chapter 12, and God reaffirms his covenant with man and says, no, 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 we're still doing this. We're just going to do it a little bit of a different way. And you go throughout the book of Genesis, and it's just a giant mess. And then you get to the start of Exodus chapter 1, and you see God is still fulfilling what he said he would do. And so for us today, as we begin to open up our scriptures together, and we get to open up the Bibles individually, we begin to see, man, this is what God has said he's going to do. This is the work of God. This is what God has promised. And if that's all true, and if God always is faithful to fulfill his promises, and no matter what might be happening in life today, God didn't stop working in you or for you. And we can hear that, and maybe that's a bit of a, cre- a cliche line in the Christian life and the Christian church, but hear me, it is something that is so absolutely necessary if we want to follow Jesus. If we want to be honest about really taking on what we talked about over the last couple of weeks, which is this real movement into the life that the Bible and the kingdom of God call us to, I'm telling you what, it's not going to be super easy. It's going to be harder to trust the promises of God when life isn't going so well, when we don't have the security that we've become dependent upon. So this first lesson, this first reflection we get to understand is that God is always working. He's never not faithful. That is who he is, and he will be that way forever. Amen, church? Like That's, that's who our God is, right? And so we can take that to the bank. We can rest in that fact, no matter the circumstance of the day. Now, um, back to the narrative, verse 8. Let's keep going. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service and mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field and all their work. They ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So quick history lesson, right? The people of God, these Israelites, land in Egypt because there was famine in their own land. Joseph, the 11th of 12 brothers, the 11th of the 12 sons of Jacob, right? He comes to Egypt and through a crazy set of circumstances, works himself up to like number two in the kingdom and just starts crushing it. Like the Pharaoh loves him, everyone loves him, and he gains a lot of power and status and he invites his family out of the famine and into Egypt They were sojourners, they were immigrants who came in and said, hey, you can live here, you can live off of what we have because we have an abundance, we'll take care of you, okay? And so that's why Israel's there. Now you fast forward three, four hundred years now, and that's when we get to the book of Exodus. Israel has blown up, but what has also happened is Joseph has died, and there is a new pharaoh on the block which remains nameless, and that will become important in just a moment. But this pharaoh doesn't know who Joseph is. He doesn't know that these Israelites have been a blessing to their community for hundreds and hundreds of years. And so he begins to oppress them and enslave them which I'll give you our second 
reflection from the past that we need to be mindful of today, and it's that worldly fear plus power equals oppression and injustice. You take worldly fear and you mix that with some power, the outworking will be oppression and injustice. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in Egypt. But then he started getting insecure. And he began to look around and he said, this isn't, this isn't going to go so well for us anymore. The, the, these people, and there's really four, there's four real main reasons, and we know this from studying history and our scriptures, four main reasons why he was fearful of the Israelite people. Identity, language, culture, and influence. Identity, they weren't Egyptian, okay? They were Israelites. They weren't Egyptian. This was not their citizenship, their language. They didn't probably speak that much Egyptian, right? Where, where they settled was probably some area of Egypt that was far more of a Semitic language, which would have allowed them to speak more of a kind of a Hebrew-Semitic combo, if you will. So they didn't speak the language. They didn't assimilate. They didn't worship Ra. They didn't become Egyptian. They stayed Israelites. They still worshiped Yahweh. They still kept their customs. They're going to practice Passover. They still had their traditions. They still had their festivals. They still had their way of life. And Pharaoh didn't like that. They didn't assimilate well. And lastly, they were growing too fast, and their influence was growing to be too powerful. They were beginning to have too much influence over what was happening. And so Pharaoh, in fear of what could happen, in fear of the unknown, in fear of the one who was not him, who was not his people, who he couldn't understand, he oppresses them and subjugates them to slavery and bondage in Egypt. God's people. Who again, listen, they're, they're not in this, like, they're not like fomenting an insurrection right now. Like, they're not like trying to tear Egypt down. They're, they're literally just being faithful workers. They're being faithful people in exile, in a community and a place that was not their own. Yet fear plus power, worldly fear plus power will equal oppression and injustice. So, so there's a question that, that's obvious that we have to ask is, well, where, where does that put us, right? Like, do, do we have power? Okay. The reality of power is everyone, everyone has some. Okay? No, no one is powerless. Because, because you, you make decisions for your own life. That's a form of power. You probably have friends or roommates or uh, spouses, children. Right? You, you, make, you, you have the power to choose where you go to eat in this country. Right? You have, everyone has a bit of power, but let's be honest. Like the, the power dynamics, they, they increase and they decrease based on position and status. And so Pharaoh certainly had far more power than the average Israelite slave. He had far more power than anyone else in the kingdom. You fast forward to our world in 2019, I have more power than my children. And that is a good thing, Right? Your bosses, if you work somewhere, they have more power than you, right? They can fire you. They can hire you. They can give you raises. They can reprimand you, et cetera, et cetera. You get this. People have more power than other people. The question is not, is power in and of itself good or bad? It's what's motivating that power, and is it worldly fear or godly fear? 
And if it's worldly fear, it's going to lead to oppression and injustice. If you have power and you are fearful of those around you, you, you don't want people to speak into your life. You don't want people to have a say in what you do, what you say, who you're with, etc. All the stuff we talked about the last couple of weeks. That, that fear will lead to you pushing those people away and finding ways to discredit their voice. Because you don't want to have to deal with the fact that you've got your own issues. And, and we, right? It's, we have our own stuff. And so just in Pharaoh, we see this reality that we have to look inward to ourselves, which is a theme throughout the Bible. As we'll see Egypt do some horrendous and horrific things, but what we're going to see as the story goes on is Israel, as they enter into the wilderness, are going to realize, actually, we're pretty Egyptian ourselves. We, we, We got more than enough Egypt in us. We got more than enough idolatry in us. We got more than enough worldly fear and oppression in us. And so we don't sit back, read this story, nor sit back and look back at something that's happened thousand years ago and say, oh man, that was, that was crazy that they did that. No, no, no. We say, well, that, that's me. Like that can very easily be me. Like we'll look at Pharaoh and you'll say, gosh, Pharaoh's just such a terrible dude. I'd never do that. You might. You might. Because there's a bit of Pharaoh in all of us. And then when we use that power and it's guided by a worldly fear, I tell you, it leads us to bad places. So let's keep going. And we're going to see a, a different fear. This is, uh, some people say it's a tale of two fears. It's very clever. Verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra, the other Pua, when you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son shall kill him, but if it's a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are too vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dwelt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So you, you get this, this contradicting story. And this is very important. I told you, Pharaoh is never named in the Exodus story. Why? Because he's not to be heralded or cared about. His, his power, his grandeur, his status, so what? You know where the real power is? Two midwives named Shipra and Pua. We don't get the Pharaoh's name, the most powerful man in Egypt, but we get two female midwives all the way back in history that we get to talk about that today from the pulpit that we might learn from them. And this is going to be an ongoing, beautiful reality to the story of Moses in the book of Exodus. It is consistently women that crush it when it comes to supporting Moses. Like it's often the dudes that are just doing a really poor job of following God. And you get story after story after story of faithful women Stepping up, stepping in, and being God's vice regents that his story of redemption might happen in the book of Exodus and throughout the rest of the world. 
Again, this is, this is why we have to love the scriptures. Like it, it speaks to a story that is just so absolutely different from the one we hear from the world. The one that we've become accustomed to, the air we breathe. It is such a beautifully, that's why we read it. Learn about God. So um, reflection number three. Power plus godly fear equals blessing and justice. Okay? If worldly fear plus power will move us towards oppression and justice, godly fear plus power leads us to blessing and justice. We step in, we move forward. Just like these women who commanded by Pharaoh to take these kids' lives. And let's just stop for a moment and empathize with their situation. Because by them doing this, they're literally sacrificing everything. So physically, if they get found out, they're going to die, okay? If, if, if maybe there's just some doubt in there, right? They have jobs. Like this is, and especially, hear me, their status and relationship with Pharaoh was probably pretty good. Like these would have been midwives in the courts of Pharaoh. He would have probably known these. These women might have delivered Pharaoh's kids. But in the midst of it all, even in the midst of what, this king, this pharaoh was saying, they said, you know what, there's, there's another king that's stronger than you, bro. And there's another king that I follow. There's another king that we're going to listen to. So you might say, you might decree, you might say this is the law, but I'm going to tell you right now, that's not going to happen for me. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs notes that this is the first act of civil disobedience in the history of recorded word. Okay. The first moment where they're like, no, I, I don't care if you say I'm supposed to do that. Like, God's way, God's law, God's heart, God, God, God is what I live for. And so they choose him. So when we come back to, well, let me say this too, more modern day, or not modern day, but more uh, for, for our tradition as Americans, right? Thomas Jefferson, when injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. When injustice becomes law, resistance becomes duty. When there's unjust law, we, we press against that. And how do we then determine? Hear me. Christian, you are significantly and particularly equipped to be able to navigate what is just and unjust. Because you do not have a personal definition of right and wrong. You do not have a personal definition of morality. You and I have a definition from the Word of God. So we can study and know the Word of God and we can say, that is moral, that is immoral, that is just, that is unjust. And then as the people of God who are motivated, what? By a reverence and a fear of God, not of anything that this world could ever throw at us, we then say, let's go. Just like we see these amazing women here in Exodus uh, verses, wherever that was, 19. So, um, last little verse here and we'll be done. The Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So, his, his little midwife plan didn't work, right? And, and so he, well, hear me, worldly fear and power, it will double down. It doesn't often relent. It will say, okay, if that's true, how do I go harder? How do, how do I oppress more? 
So he's now, he's like, okay, that didn't work. You know what we're going to do? Hey, everyone, here's a decree for all the people of Egypt. It's time we take out the men of Israel, these children of Israel, that they be blotted from the earth, right? You take out all of one male or female, eventually, right, you get that, science, okay? And so they're, they're systematically trying to rid the world of an entire people group. This is the beginning of an attempt at genocide. We want to get rid of Israel. Here's how we'll do it. And so here, this is, like, like we read this, and so we begin to think through, right? Like you think through history and, and all the villains, the great villains that we study in history class, we don't often come back to Pharaoh. This guy tried to blot Jews out way before Hitler did. But this is the story of how then God, in the midst of that reality, delivers and removes and saves his exiled, sojourned people, that they then might continue the work that he had called them to. Why? Because God fulfills his promises, sometimes in ways we would never expect him to do it. And so the book of Exodus, this was just right, this is just an intro. Hopefully it, it wets our ears a little bit. Is that, I don't even know what to think. Tickles our ears, wets our mouths. <laughs> the thing is, uh, I'm really bad at idioms. Um, hopefully this draws us into the story a little bit. So, okay, well, what, what's next? Now, maybe you've seen Prince of Egypt, and so you think you know the story. Okay? You're like, oh, no, I got this, dude. I saw Prince of Egypt. I'm fine. Okay? And it's not unhelpful, mostly. (laughs) Guys, we need to have a growing affection for the story of God. And and so again, I'll say this in closing. Please go home, read Genesis, and begin to read Exodus. Get into your Bibles. Study this beautiful word. Let us see who God is in the midst of a reality that honestly we could experience today. As the exiled people of God that Peter tells us the church is, this is not our home. Our citizenship is not here. We are sojourners on our way to a heavenly kingdom. So in this transition, may we too be as faithful as God is calling Israel to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and we love you. God, I'm so excited to open up this book. I'm so excited that your word gets to tell us about such a beautiful story of your work in the lives of your people. God, thank you that you've grafted us into that, that we can learn today and that we can apply. God, the context of their world, we'd like to think it's way different. It's not. It's humanity not treating other humanity well. In the midst of it, an exiled people that's trying to be faithful. God, I want to pray for any of those that would be here that wouldn't consider themselves a follower or lover of you, Jesus, that you would speak to their souls and their hearts today and that they would maybe see you for the first time, understand you for the first time, and worship you for the first time. God, for those of us who love you, will we be convicted by the Spirit of God to walk in the fullness of who you've called us to as citizens in the kingdom? God, we anxiously look forward to being able to speak to you through prayer and hear from you through your word. 
Lord, would you bless us? And would you make us more faithful than we could ever make ourselves? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.